Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of Filmography Club. I'm Jason Cavanis. Today I'm joined by Megan Burke. Megan has been an intellectual property and entertainment law attorney in Oxford, Mississippi, that's my old stomping grounds, for 15 years, and a filmmaker and an actor for 10. She won a Southern Foodways Alliance grant to produce a documentary on regional cuisine, and her short film, Garage Sale, won a hoka at the Oxford Film Festival. Her studies have focused on art criticism and the examination of an artist's intent as related to the artistic product. Megan continues to serve the regional film community as screenplay coordinator for the Oxford Film Festival. She has also acted in many regional films, including the feature Earthrise and the award-winning short Trick or Treat. Having Megan on for this episode was sort of perfect. She's a film geek, without a doubt, but also she's a reader. Uh, She's a reader of novels. She is a reader of complicated and heady novels, and more specifically, she's read Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, and that's what we're talking about today on the show. This film marks the first time that Paul Thomas Anderson has adapted someone else's story for the screen. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, ah, but Jason, what about There Will Be Blood? That was based on an Upton Sinclair novel. Yeah, that's true. It was based on maybe the first third of that Sinclair novel called Oil, but he took heavy liberties with that one-third. This is the first time he's ever adapted an entire novel and pretty much stuck to that story structure. Meg's another guest that I go way back with, and we hadn't spoken in a while, so it was great to sit down with her after a few years and catch up while we talked about a damn good, a solid movie. So now I bring you my chat with Megan Burke about Paul Thomas Anderson's seventh feature-length film, the dramatic comedy, or maybe it's a comedic drama, 2014's Inherent Vice. Megan Burke. Megan, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. It's great to see you. It's been way too long. It's been a long time since I've seen you. Like a decade. Yeah, it's been way too long. It's good to see you here. So, Inherent Vice is one of your favorite films. Am I right about that? Or it's a film that you enjoy, I guess. I love what Inherent Vice tries to do. I love the source material. I love a lot about it. I am not, it is not one of my top 10 movies. Okay. But I do think, you know, I had this great art professor once who said, great art asks questions. Doesn't necessarily answer them, but asks them. And I think this movie asked a lot of questions. And so I I dig on it. Okay. So you're coming at this more from a Thomas, say his last name, is it Pinchon? Yes. Did I say that correctly? I've heard it three or four times, but I'm going to go with The Simpsons. Okay. And they say Pynchon. Okay, so Thomas Pynchon. Uh, so you're coming at this more of a you're more of a fan of his, right? Right. I'm a woefully 
I don't necessarily have the depth of knowledge I should to say that, but I loved this book. I thought Inherent Vice, it's one of the few books of his, when you read it, you can see it. Of course, Pete Anderson saw it better than I did. And I really think he did some amazing things when he brought it to the screen. See, I've never read any of his books. So you've got, from what I know about his work, it's supposed to be really opaque, kind of hard to figure out what's going on. And a lot of it deals with hippie culture. Is that right? Am I in the neighborhood? It it always seems to, he's always very interested in pop culture and the reflection of time on man's experiences. But this particular book was kind of an outlier because, I mean, I wouldn't say it's plot driven because as you know from the movie, the plot makes no sense. (laughs) Character driven, I would say. Absolutely. But there is a lot of stuff that happens. It may not be plot driven, but there is a lot of plot and it, it reads like a screenplay. It really does. And he melds the high and low art and pop culture in a way that only P.T. Anderson, maybe Quentin Tarantino, could match. Yeah, I read a a quote from P.T. Anderson uh, just this morning about this when I was kind of cramming, and he said that to read the novel, there's just really heady themes in it. I'm paraphrasing, but he also mixes it in with the best poop and fart jokes that you'll ever hear. It is highbrow and lowbrow, and some of the jokes, I mean, I told you when I reread it for this podcast, and I just laughed my ass off. It's one of the brightest minds in American letters, just scraping the bottom of the barrel for a dick joke. It's sure, funny. Sure. You know? I, yeah. Yeah. I dig it. So I guess we should talk a little bit about the plots of the film, but really we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because this is almost impenetrable. Um, it's well, quite purposefully. I mean, I think the fog, the, the physical fog that Anderson brings about a million times throughout the movie and like, lovely heavy-handed way which is just so rich i especially love the fog with with koi the first time he meets koi right how he literally gets lost in the fog yeah um but yeah the plot is completely secondary to this film yeah so we've got three plots really plus a couple of subplots and they interweave the three plots you've got the plot with koi mm-hmm. we've got the plot with shasta and mickey their and their disappearance and then we've got the plot Sherlock, right? Am I saying that name right? Sherlock? Glenn Sherlock. Yeah, Yeah, I think that plot was the one that was the least developed in the movie, I thought, especially Mm -hmm. where the, you know, the Black Panthers were brought in as sort of one of the 17 MacGuffins in this film. And then it never goes anywhere. So in my mind, I just sort of lumped the Glenn Black Panther thing in with the Mickey disappearance. And as far as I'm concerned the only plot thread that matters is the koi is is the resolution of koi and everything else is this hippie noise that was made to just push us on the journey i mean it is just the boat that takes us to these crazy ports so if we describe the overall aesthetic of this movie you're going to think that we're talking about the big lebowski and i guess that's sort of the elephant in the room let's get that out of the way right now it's a hippie-ish pi neo-noir type guy he's got a buddy that's sort of a flat-topped authoritarian guy who's prone to yelling. And uh, there's a young lady who disappears and then shows back up. And everyone's like, hey, where did you go? And they're like, yeah, fuck you. I just fucked off for a little while. And, and there's a lot of similarities there. And there's lots of weed smoking going on with the main detective guy. And in the end, the plot's really not that all that important. It's really just more about characters. But these are two totally different movies. This does not feel like The Big Lebowski whatsoever that that's exactly where i come down on that and you can't read a single review without echoes of the big lebowski 
or references to it, but I totally agree. Besides location and marijuana. Yeah, I forgot to mention the location too, both Los Angeles. Yeah, both of them are, you know, beachy Los Angeles. I don't see anything similar. The similarities are only topical. The Big Lebowski is 100% a comedy. I don't think it's I don't think it wants to be anything else but that. It's not asking or answering any painful questions about America at the precipice of a culture of a of a you know, a huge culture change. Even though we are at a culture change in Big Lebowski, it's not of interest and it that's part of the joke how impenetrable these people are to the world around them. Whereas I think Anderson takes a different look. Everyone is very much affected by their world in negative ways. I'd agree with that. It, uh, this movie takes place in 1970. Mm-hmm. So uh, hippie culture is uh, it's certainly still present, but it's on the wane. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of going away. And we're moving into the more, the less enlightened, spiritually enlightened era of the 60s and into the more capitalist-driven 70s. And that's a big theme of this movie, too, uh, capitalism, the whole golden fang thing. And, and that's a whole other... <laughs> One of the plot points... And it, it's funny if you, because I was trying to sketch out some of the plot ideas, and one of them was a rich man tries to give money away, and people actually have him institutionalized. Right. I mean, that that Literally. is what a scathing indictment of capitalism it is. We are shown that at this point in time, the idea of being generous paramount to insanity. So it, does, it pulls no punches. It is not trying to be subtle with its criticism. But I think it criticizes everybody in the film, too. I mean, I don't think Doc is held up as any... I think Doc is the closest we get to an innocent, to a totally pure character. But then P.T. Anderson fucks it up with that absolutely out-of-nowhere six-minute long shot of sexual aggression, which... Ugh. Yeah, there was the... the. It's a PTA film, so it's got to have a long take, and that was that was the one, and it was... Wow, gratuitous. Uh, was that that so the scene wasn't in the novel? Not that not that I want to talk about the novel too much, but you've read it and I've got you here, so I want to mention it. I've got to tell you, I did not I don't believe it was. I and somebody will I'm sure somebody will gladly email in and correct me, um, because I just reread it and I'm pretty sensitive to violence against females and art, especially when it's completely unnecessary. And I don't think it sheds any light on their situation or doc or anything. And I was that was the that was one moment I found problematic. I don't believe it was in the book. And I don't think it advanced the story. And it was a lovely long take until then. It was. And but yeah, for some reason, I don't know, it didn't make sense that they had sex. It didn't it didn't affect anything that came after it. You could have just taken that whole shot out Mm -hmm. And just, or at least not the whole shot, but just had, oh, she's back and she's totally indifferent to all the the chaos that her disappearance wrought. I I liked the, up until the actual moment of sexual violence, I thought it was a nice shot for Catherine Waterston, I think is her name, the woman that plays Shasta Faye. Right. I don't love all of her choices as an actor. I think if I were directing her, I would have asked her to be less purposefully inscrutable, but... You know, she made good choices, and I thought she deserved this moment to shine because P.T. Anderson doesn't always let women shine in his films. So this was a a strong moment. And then it just, they pulled the rug out from underneath us. So there was a lot of good stuff in that scene. It answered some, it put us a little bit more in her mind. But it was almost like he did it just for the callback joke at the end. But surely we could have gotten that in some less violent way. Yeah, it was... um 
Yeah, aggressive and brief a sexual encounter. (laughs) Very brief, as a matter of fact. I mean, well, to be fair, I think she she was certainly interested in sex. I mean, she showed up totally nude and was being very aggressive with that foot. I mean, she was into it, but then, I don't know, he certainly... Absolutely. I'm not arguing that it was rape. I just, the tone of the sexual encounter just didn't match either character or the film up to that point. And it didn't match the film after that point. It was like a hardcore porn scene got very brief, hardcore porn scene got dropped into this otherwise lovely movie. We've got Coy, Shasta, Mickey, and Sherlock. I definitely got the impression that some of these scenes were hallucinations. Now, the narrator, played by Joanna Newsom, I'm not quite sure how you, you say her name. Sort of Liege. They sort-a-lege. pronounce it sort of Liege. So, okay, sort of Liege. But that's yeah. not how it would be pronounced in French. But And okay. you know in French that means sorcerer. Ah, I didn't know Or that. visionary. So it kind of gets into that sense. hallucination vibe you're getting. So she's narrating. She's a character in the movie, but she's also a hallucination. She's never really there, right? I go back and forth. Obviously, she's not there in the car scenes because Anderson makes a really big deal about giving us a harsh cut where we see she's gone. But then he gratuitously references her in the very final segment. And I don't think that dialogue did much except make us wonder. Up until then, we felt very comfortable, those of us who paid attention, saying, oh, she's not real. That's a subconscious element. That's pot addled Jiminy Cricket or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, we have Shasta Faye talk about her. That was bizarre. Yeah. I didn't get that either. That's why I asked the question, because I would just assume, well, that's it. She's just not in it. But seeing as how I've got someone that actually read the novel here, I wanted to ask, and maybe if the, if the novel had any kind of insight or if it addressed it in any way. In the novel, she was a minor character. She popped in and out. There were, there were a couple sojourns that didn't make their way into the movie. And, and she was sort of the guide. Like, there was a side trip in the book that she she actually got him connected with the guru that got him on the trip but she was a very minor character but what he did with that character i mean of course i will watch joanna newsom do anything in the whole wide world so i have a soft spot but it was the only it was the most effective way to get narration in because i don't know how you feel about voiceovers i tend to be very suspect i think I, I, my default line is a good director can evince this idea without dialogue or without explicit narration. But this was an instant where she, an instance where she set the tone and added to the film and didn't take away and gave fanboys an opportunity to argue about whether she was real. So, I mean, there was a lot of good stuff in this character. And uh, it was one of the few voiceovers I found 
totally in line with the movie and it didn't pull me out at all. Yeah, I think I come from the same camp as you. I don't particularly care for voiceover that explains the plot. If you've ever seen the theatrical cut of Blade Runner, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Holy shit, it's so bad. But... In this case, I think it worked. Yeah, I do too. And I, what I loved about her voiceover was she just rambled about dumb shit. She was kind of a carryover, a holdover from the 60s. Yeah. So I think that's what they were trying to play up there. As they struggle with the cataclysm between eras brought to focus by, of course, the Manson, the Manson murder. Yeah, so. it's explicitly stated, as a matter of fact, at one point in the film, Mansonoid, I believe they referred to the... They, I think, I kept track in the movie, and I think they... Explicitly bring up Manson five times because it 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 is a pall over the book. You are not intended to escape it, and so I think he actually sort of toned that down a little bit in the movie. And I'm glad because once again, to use Manson as a shortcut is also just to use violence against women as a shortcut too um, to to move a plot forward. So I'm glad he sort of minimized that. But it it was enough for us to understand the unease. Although I got to tell you, I still and. I, I watched it so many times. I do not understand the car ride with the dentist. A lot of the film is really, even though the situations are outlandish, the reactions are realistic, or it seems that it there is a foot in reality, if not two feet in reality, there is at least some component. The car ride from the the Golden Fang building, the, the dentist office, to the beach or wherever the hell they were going, that... I, I would really like someone to explain it to me. And uh, if you can explain it to me, I would love to know because I was lost. I, w- I was lost too, but I kind of expected to be lost through almost the entire movie. Once I realized that the plot was convoluted on purpose and that this was a character study, almost a hangout movie in a weird way, um, I, I kind of just let that shit slide. And I was like, you know what? I'll just watch a video essay and someone smarter than me will figure this thing out and explain it to me. Um, but that's one thing that's just kind of left dangling. I've had some stuff explained. I've done a dive on some things that I just didn't quite grasp right off the bat. And that one still is just hanging there in the air. And I still have no idea what that was about. I hate to harp on the things I don't like, but that just seems to be a way to examine a movie that you otherwise like. Because it can be kind of boring to just say, oh, well, I thought he was very successful in this and very successful in that. But the car ride really stuck out as a tonal anomaly. It didn't work for me. And I don't know. It did, I guess, let us look at the fear that the Manson murders had placed the town in. I think that had been established already. I I guess that's what it accomplished. But really odd, odd choices in that. And I'm not sure. That was the most big Lebowski moment to me of the film. It was just outrageous. And kind of off-putting, and it didn't seem to go anywhere. Although, of course, Martin Short being Martin Short is always funny. So we've got a narrator who may or may not be there. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought maybe that's where the hallucinations would begin and end, and maybe everything else I can take at face value. But then you've got that tell at the very beginning when we're watching Bigfoot, who I guess we should explain him a little bit briefly. He's a police officer who is kind of friends But an antagonist also towards our main character, but he's also an actor. So he's he's a he's a police a detective, 
and also an actor because this is Los Angeles. And at the beginning, when you see him doing the commercial for Mickey Wolfman, he's playing a hippie. But then at the end of the commercial, he starts directly addressing Doc, which is clearly not in the, in real life. That That is one of the things that I think Anderson plays with so effectively. The things that seem very real and very normal turn out to be false, or at least partially false. So this very trite commercial where this uptight detective is pretending to be a hippie and saying things like far out and, and groovy right on and, yeah. and my soul just died a little every single time josh brolin did that it was hilarious but then that turns out to be at least partially false when he addresses doc but then okay so that commercial was for the channel view estates and so this being a film noir he is dragged to the channel view estates to investigate he gets there and it's this bleached out film quality so 70s you know it could have been right from the long goodbye he turns around and there are military service people moving towards him and i thought oh he's tripping balls you know this is just bullshit not real but that turns out to have actually happened yeah that was real because he gets knocked out someone with a bat or something knocks the guy out was that adrian i'm just now putting that together because the guy had had all the bats he had a the pension for the bats that was prussia okay prussia adrian prussia Mm -hmm. right Okay, so he gets knocked out, and he wakes up, and he's in a field, and he's next to a dead... um, Sherlock. Sherlock, yes, and he's surrounded by police officers, and of course, Bigfoot's there. He plays such a a bastard cop so well. He's such an asshole. The things... he, He refers to our hero at one point as smelling like a patchouli fart wonderful that's just a uh, yes that's so evocative the relationship between bigfoot and doc is arguably the best part of this film because they are aligned morally they are both good people and honestly they are simply good i mean if this were a dnd world these are these are lawful good characters and they are they've got their eye on the prize uh, okay, maybe maybe Bigfoot veers off a little bit towards the end. Yeah, with the heroin. Yeah. yeah that was, uh... But it's funny because they, so they're morally aligned, but personally completely at odds. From two different worlds, hippie yes. culture and the straight-laced cop world. It's the best comparison I read for them. It's like Tom and Jerry. I mean, they really were, they were like cartoon characters. And, you know, of course, Anderson just went over the top at the end with that final confrontation between Bigfoot and Doc. Keep in mind, Bigfoot has tried to screw Doc over in a way that he could have been killed. He could have been sent away forever. Ever. I mean, this that was a lot of heroin. Yeah. And his justification was, oh, I've seen you on the range. Well, what the hell, man? First, I had to get out of the handcuffs. You know, so it just really... There was a lot of confidence there, and I, I but they were, they were, it was like a buddy cop movie where the buddy cops were never in the same patrol car, you know? Yeah. It was, in, I really thought that was a really well done, and Brolin is just, I mean, I would watch, I would watch him do this all day. It was hilarious, and, you know, it's even better now because it's kind of like watching Thanos eat a plateful of weed, and that's interesting. Yeah, real quick side note, it was uh, Robert Downey Jr. was almost Doc. But uh, in the end, he said he suspects Paul Thomas Anderson thought he was just too old to be in the film. But I'm looking forward to seeing Robert Downey Jr. in a P.T. Anderson movie one of these days. Yeah, I am. I, I'm not the biggest RDJ fan in the whole wide world. I get it. He, he's got the one thing that he does. I don't know. Guy's charismatic. He is. But I do think this was one film where I thought Joaquin Phoenix got out of his own way. I think he tends to be really present in movies and... 
sometimes when you're watching a Joaquin Phoenix movie, it's hard to forget you're watching Joaquin Phoenix. Does that does that make sense? He is so present in his roles. I thought he did a really good job of sublimating himself and allowing this movie to wash over him and the characters. And I think that's why the women shone for the a very rare instance. I mean, I guess you could argue in Boogie Nights, you know, he, he allowed women to have their moment too. But I thought this was a really good example of Phoenix just not putting himself in front of the material for once. Kind of a, um, I want to say laid back. I don't mean to reflect the character because he was certainly a laid back character, but just his performance. Mm-hmm. It wasn't too, too in your face. He didn't demand your attention at all times. Yeah, there were, you know, a couple over the top instances. And I don't know if they were directed or Phoenix. The heroin baby scream. Of course. I thought that was a hallucination. I got the impression that didn't happen. That felt like heightened reality to me. Absolutely. I There's no way that happened. And there's no way he got slapped by Belladonna or the Sherlock's sister. So who? I was researching her. Mm-hmm. That, char- that actress. She was born in the city next to me. And she's about my age. So I'm hoping... And she's a porn star. Her name is Belladonna. So I'm really hoping one of my high school friends went to homecoming with her. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had no idea. I'll tell you what. See, wow. the things you learn on a Wikipedia rabbit hunt. So I hear Thomas Pinchon is in this movie somewhere. Is he in the movie? Did you see him? Did you play the game, find him? Because he, he's kind of a recluse. If, is that right? Or he likes to stay out of the public eye, at least. I don't mean to be hyperbolic about it. Yeah, I don't think nobody... It's not that no one knows what he looks like. It's not that he doesn't go out to the grocery store, but he there is not a publicly dispersed photograph of him. So I wouldn't know if he's in the movie. I know Brolin said he was, but I have not been able to confirm that, and I, I wouldn't know him if I saw him. Okay, Doc, you have what looks to be a 20-kilo inconvenience in your trunk. Bigfoot, no doubt, putting out word to that effect. And once again, you're the bait. So let's formulate a plan, starting with ditching this Asian shit someplace fast. Tango can't get the fuck out of our key. You know what's weird? Our main character, our hero, Doc, no arc whatsoever in this film. He's the same exact guy at the end of the film as he is at the very beginning. He's undergoes absolutely no change whatsoever. It's sort of a Ghostbusters type situation where no one has an arc. The movie ends on pretty much the same shot it opens on. Mm -hmm. It's looking right past those two beach houses out out to the beach. It's almost the exact same shot. And I think that's the commentary. I think, and maybe this is a Lebowski type moment as well, that Doc may not be able to change with the times. And he may just be destined to be a relic. But, you know, of course, that ending also evokes The Graduate to people making a horrible mistake joyfully and gleefully. And um, so I like the fact that Doc doesn't change. I think it allows all the change around him to come into sharper focus because he's not also evolving. He's, uh, yeah, the same exact guy at the beginning as he is at the end. And he's pretty much one of the few people in the movie that has a code that he lives by. Mm-hmm. Now, you may not agree with that code. I mean, almost every scene he's in. This movie, by the way, is a series of people in rooms talking to one another and comparing notes and him just trying to learn things from. That's pretty much what this movie is. There's not a lot of action in this movie. There's the scene at the end where Doc kills those two guys. But Which doesn't another tonal anomaly in this movie. Right. I mean, all of a sudden, I guess we're led to believe he's a talented P.I., you know, he does manage to do his job despite copious amounts of drugs. That, the aggression, and I know it was purposeful because Anderson doesn't do anything by accident, but that 
beating a man head brain to pulp. I I was fascinated by the violence of that particular death, and I thought it was a very odd choice. I did too, but they did establish he was on PCP when this happened, so he's not. This is not a drug that he's that he's used to. This isn't something that he just does. Like the guy gives it to him, and he explicitly says, like you know, acid will open a door for you. PCP will shove you right through that door and lock it behind you. They, I think, I think it's, I don't know. I feel like that was set up. I feel like that was like, yeah, he maybe shouldn't have been that aggressive, but then again, here he is on this, this super hardcore drug. I appreciate that perspective. I still think that it was a side of Doc that wasn't explored enough to be reasonable in that situation. But same with the sexual violence or the sexual aggression. It, maybe that's the point. Maybe there's more... Maybe there's more of this to Doc than we want to admit. We don't really know what his relation, his sexual relationship with Shasta was in mm-hmm. the past. Maybe rough sex was their thing. I, I don't know. It's never established. And the only hint we get at it, we get, is uh, in that one scene. And then Doc, Doc straight up kills two people. You know, he bashes one of them's brains in with the top of a toilet, mm-hmm. toilet uh, lid. And then uh, he shoots the other guy, which... I, I gotta say, I love that shot though. Looking uh, up the stairs, and he's just completely sweaty, and he's moving the, his hand around with the pistol. And I think he even asks, "Did I hit you?" It's a good uh, jarring change and uh, a good shift in tone. Yeah, I think the juxtaposition there really did work, but it still is almost like a super doc that we weren't, we weren't. I wasn't prepared to see that, even though I knew it was coming, and you know, we were led to believe that he was a qualified marksman, but. Wow, that was something. We get that one throwaway line from Bigfoot. I've seen you on the range. Mm-hmm. It was just him saying, eh, I had faith in you. I've seen you shoot. Because no matter what, it didn't matter to, I mean, obviously it didn't matter to Bigfoot. This made it easier, but he could have gone in on his own too. So yeah. it was really fun to watch it again. And even though, if, like you mentioned, the plot is purposefully obtuse, it was really fun to watch Bigfoot push him down this path. And so I kind of thought about it as Doc's trying to find Koi. Bigfoot is trying to get him to storm into Adrian Prush's house. And it was really, it was very entertaining to me how eventually how obvious he had to be with this to the point of handing him a card and saying, just laying it out, A plus B equals C. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then even, even the narrator comments on that and, you know, makes a big deal about, oh, he's, it's midnight and he's not sure if the, you know, the pool is drained and he's going to dive in to explain this batshit decision it makes no sense to storm into a you know a contract killer's house but it makes made for interesting film so let's talk about the cast here because he seems to have paul thomas anderson being he seems to have left his uh his stable kind of in the past i think this is the first film he had done where i think this is post philip seymour hoffman's death if i'm not mistaken or it's right around this time so we don't have any of those guys in it but it's a huge cast and it's stacked joaquin phoenix comes back for round two, he did The Master, which was last episode, of course. Josh Brolin is in this film, of course. And then we've got Owen Wilson. We haven't mentioned him yet. We've mentioned his character, Coy. He's in the movie basically being Owen Wilson. I thought he was heartbreakingly wonderful. And I'm not the biggest Wilson apologist, but this, you know, especially, I know you're, you know, you need to separate the art from the artist, but that man can play regret and heartbreak and hope in a way that I don't think he is utilized that well by his other go-to directors. I think this was a real moment for him to shine. Mm-hmm. I bought every single second of his longing. 
And we've got Catherine Waterston, who I'm really not familiar with her work. The only other thing I think that I, off the top of my head that she's been in was that god-awful Alien movie that, that just came out. It's the latest Ridley Scott paycheck. And then there's uh, we've got Benicio Del Toro. Oh, my God. He is everyone so loves. good. Then we've got Jenna Malone of Joanna Newsom. Uh, this may be her film debut. I'm not sure about that, but it was nice to see and hear her voice. Let's see. Who else do we have? We've got, I'm going to fuck her last name up, Hong Chow. Oh, yeah, Jade. Jade. So funny. Yeah, she was a big hit with my wife. She's just so cute and adorable well, in this movie. And she motivates a lot of the action. I mean, she, she just really name-dropped Golden Fang out yeah. of nowhere. In writing, too. Mm-hmm. Just flat out in writing, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do. She connects Koi and Doc, um, and she's just hilarious. I I really, because you, you think, in, you... I mean, you'd like to give Anderson more credit, but you see that character come on screen and you think, oh, God, this could be this is a ripe area for some some tropes, sure. some stereotypes. Yeah. And he just turns them on their head. And, yeah, she's kind of a dingbat, but she's got her, you know, she's got her shit together. She's adorable. She's absolutely <laughs> adorable in this movie. And then we've got Maya Rudolph finally in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. If you don't know, Maya Rudolph, of course, from Saturday Night Live is also Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, significant other. I'm not quite sure if they're married, though they're they not. do have like, I think four kids together and they're they would be common law married in a state that had common law marriage um, and the best it's part nice to see her in a film with him i think that was their first formal pairing right in a film and the best part is if you look at that scene i, I know she's in several scenes but on one of the scenes the music in the background is her mom's song les fleurs oh that's great mm-hmm. that's fantastic i didn't know that no i didn't notice he's he's really good with the musical cues oh the music in this i just i had some expectations about the music because the book like all pinchon books it's filled with pop culture references including songs films books so many film references in this book i'm for anybody that's listening to this podcast obviously you're a film lover it would be worth it just to watch all the films that doc watches in this film in the in the book because he does this thing where he always gives the year of the movie mm-hmm. in parentheses even if doc is just thinking about the movie that's int- it's funny it's a funny little tick and so it just it's kind of an interesting list of movies that sort of explain who doc is um, he he goes on and on about the characters he looked up to and why he's a PI is from these, you know, gritty 1940s film noirs uh, starring John Garfield and Ida Lupino. And if you watch the whole film at the end, it's dedicated. It says for Ida. I'm guessing that's Ida Lupino. Probably. He Maybe. has name dropped her before as an actor that he would, if he could resurrect a dead actor, that she'd be one of them that he'd want to work with. But kind of an interesting yeah he's a student of film he's got an encyclopedic famously encyclopedic knowledge of film history so yeah that's almost certainly i would guess it's probably a safe guess but he does such a good combination of high and low art and it's just it's fascinating to me and it this is the guy that has you know phoenix one of the best actors working today up against a porn star you know and it just sure. and he sees the good in both of them and he sees what they can bring and i didn't mean to take you off of the songs but i thought it was interesting because there were so many songs referenced in the book. But, of course, that's a licensing issue. And sometimes record companies know they're wanted and so that they can sort of play with the price. So he only lit, used one or two songs that were in the book itself. But I think what he chose was just phenomenal. And that use of Any Day Now.
any day now I will hear you say goodbye my love and you'll be on Reality is not important to the, the progress of this film. Yeah, nor is being correct. Like we get, again, this movie is a lot of people in rooms basically being interviewed by our hero, Doc, and he gets a lot of bad information that gets correct. So while we're trying to t- take mental notes and keep up with it, it's kind of pointless. Like little things like um, when Wolfman's wife says, she talks about that one word and she says, oh, that's an old Indian word. And then we find out later on, no, that's Greek. Even that little detail, it's like, well, that, that was incorrect. And then there's the stuff with the Golden Fang. It's like Golden Fang is the schooner. No, Golden Fang is a drug car, an international drug cartel. No, Golden Fang is actually a dentist syndicate. I do think that he gets bad information, but I think that bad information was always purposeful. I think he was being fed bad information by people high up in the arrangement. Because I think Golden Fang, I mean, yes, it's the ultimate MacGuffin in the sense that it's the boogeyman. It's everything you fear. It's everything hippies fear about the world. It's it's every time somebody doesn't pay, you know, some rich guy doesn't pay their taxes. It's every time a young, gentle girl is t- literally whisked away mm-hmm. um, to see. But I do think it is real to an extent. And I think especially with Sloan, uh, Wolfman's wife, that she controlled every component of that interaction down to she mentions the lighting that's a real dp that she mentions how is a real guy a very famous dp who in fact oh, actually wow. lit i think he may have he lit a lot of john garfield movies so that's why it was um it was all brought back in he i mean just a very prolific dp and so to have a famous oscar winning dp come in to your house and do your own personal lighting right. I thought that character was just... I feel like that was brought in by PTA and probably not Pynchon. It was, no, it wasn't Pynchon. Really? Verbatim. Huh. Like, that she... It, it was very odd, but uh, Sloan... It, that whole that whole thing about the more English daffodil than English rose, mm-hmm. direct lift. Oh, wow. So much of this dialogue was straight from the book. The first pass at the, the script for this thing was Paul Thomas Anderson reading the novel, and he did it sentence by sentence. He meticulously adapted the novel into the film. Now, that was just the first pass. There was no narrator in the first pass. And then I think that's why we got a narrator in the long run. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just there's just too much information that we need to convey to the audience, and we're going to have to have someone just lay some of this stuff out for you. And he made some really good plot edits. That, you know, you think the movie was confusing. The book has uh, side trips to Las Vegas and lots of other stuff that just like the plot in this in the film doesn't add anything to it except for atmosphere and to add to the general confusion. So I think he made some really good choices. And I don't think anybody could have been as respectful of uh, the material and the author as Anderson was. We got a different ending, too. And does the novel have a different ending? It, it is the same ending, except that Shasta Faye is not in the car. In the film, she's basically back to being the old Shasta, the one in the faded country Joe and the fish T-shirt. And the floral bikini bottom. That's right. That's right. And then, uh, yeah, so she's pretty much right back to where she started. And that the book is not hopeful like that. It's not It's not necessarily unhopeful. Right. It's, <laughs> it's not, not a downer necessarily. It's not necessarily, but I do – I was surprised at how pat this ending was. And, and so I actually – I don't believe that ending for a second. I mean, the fog is 
completely enveloping except for a weird shaft of light mm-hmm. that just keeps emerging to highlight Doc's eyes occasionally. I, I'm i not sure that we are led to believe that Shasta Faye is the right person for Doc. We believe that Doc thinks that, but I'm not sure Doc being with her, even if it were real, is the best ending for him. But who knows? Speaking of endings, I think we're pretty much done. I feel, do you feel good? I feel good. Anything think, else? No, I'm... I think it's a great movie. I don't think you have to read the book to appreciate it and uh, just let it wash over you. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's 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 definitely uh, sort of a, a hangout movie, uh, maybe a character study in a way, but don't try to keep up with the plot. Just throw that shit out the window. It, just give up on that. You're not going to keep up with it. Yeah, it, it's a good film. It's uh, not one of my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movies by any means. It's certainly worth your time. Yeah, I do think it is a really good study for anybody who has ever been interested in the transition between the written word and screen, because I think Anderson really shows how it's done. Yeah. And that's, you know, useful for students of film. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Jason. All right. So there that is. Clearly, Megan's awfully smart and insightful, and I had a blast talking movies with her. Another episode done and one more movie to tackle. Join me next episode when my guest and I get into it about PTA's eighth and so far most recent film, Phantom Thread. As always, Filmography Club is brought to you by the fine folks that we own this town, the town in question being beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. I want to thank my guest, Megan Burke. I also want to thank Mike Leeds, Ross Warner, and Will Fox. We're in the home stretch now, folks. Almost done with this season. I'm Jason Cavanis. This is Filmography Club. Thanks for listening.